0: It is a very, very uh, interesting, and, and for many, the most troubling and perplexing chapter in, in the Gospel of Mark. And obviously, many are the interpretations uh, that are here. But it seems to me that if we really take the sort of higher altitude look at it, I think the main message is really clear and it's really important for us. One of the things that I see as I approach this text is a change of mood in the disciples. When you look at the disciples just a little earlier, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, it is a very apprehensive mood on their part. You remember, for example, in John chapter 11, when Jesus is approaching Bethany, which is just a stone's throw from Jerusalem. When Jesus says that he's going to Bethany, it's Thomas who says, let's go and die with him. So for the disciples, going to Jerusalem was not the safest and the healthiest course of action in their minds. That's compounded with what Jesus himself has said three times in Mark before they went to Jerusalem. And for example, in in Mark chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, We're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders. I'm going to be handed over, crucified, and and then rise from the dead. the disciples just didn't want to go down that trail they did not want to think about it but it was ominous and so when we read in mark chapter 10 and verse 32 we see that when jesus is on his way up uh, to toward jerusalem uh leaving jericho it says that many who followed him were fearful so my point is simply this as jesus approached jerusalem there was a significant amount of apprehension on the part of the disciples, and I would say rightly so. They, they had plenty to be concerned about in terms of what was going to take place there, especially from their perspective. But it seems to me that they've kind of reached a, a high point in their, in their attitudes and their expectations, and Jesus has to modify that. He has to address an excessive enthusiasm and almost hype on the part of the disciples. So I see the disciples as almost giddy at this stage of the game. And everything looks significantly better. For example, when they come to Jerusalem and, and Jesus makes his triumphal entry, he is embraced and welcomed uh, heartily by, by at least many of the people who are gathered there. Perhaps that was not expected by the disciples. Jesus cleanses the temple and then takes possession of it. So here Jesus is, day after day in that week, day after day in the temple, in possession of it where he is doing his miracles and he is doing his teaching. That looks like a favorable sign to them as well. And then to watch as the, as the most powerful leaders of the city line up, as it were, to take their shot at at Jesus and try and make him look bad, and in every instance, Jesus is the one who comes out looking better and they come out looking worse, there's a sense in which the disciples, I think, at this point are saying, wow, this isn't going so bad after all. And it's at that point, I think, as they're there in the temple, they begin to look around Uh, With a a greater level of enthusiasm, I I suggested last week uh, from the text that when Jesus was going to call his disciples' attention to this widow and her meager contribution and how great it was in his sight, he had to summon his disciples. And, And it seems to me they were out scouting things out looking for the corner office. Uh, For the kingdom, they were thinking in 12 throne terms about where they were going to be and operate from. And uh, Jesus is there uh, commending that widow. It seems to me that all of that was there a a, a signal of their enthusiasm. And Jesus is going to rain on their parade. Jesus is going to take that enthusiasm and in a sense pour cold water on it. Uh, and, and I think rightly so. So what we are dealing with is the picture that Jesus is going to draw for his disciples uh, based upon their expectations and upon his knowledge of what lays ahead for them. So as Al pointed out, there are two scenes. And if you'll go to the next uh, thing, you'll, you'll notice the next shot. Uh, I pulled these off the Internet, which just virtually all of you can do this is a looking up uh, at the mount of olives and and uh, th- that kind of rounded roof thing as i remember as a, as a restaurant or something up there i think we may have even bought a sandwich there one time but you'll notice all the white along the hill that's virtually a cemetery and so those are all graves now it, it certainly would have looked different in jesus day But this is something like the scene that the disciples would have had as they were coming out of the temple with the Lord Jesus and heading up to the Mount of Olives. They would have been heading up that hill. And then if you'll go to the next shot, when you when you see the disciples talking about all these great stones and the beauty of the temple, you get just a little flavor of that. You can see the size of of those stones. And then if you'll take uh, the next shot, you'll see... Something that I pulled off the uh, web. But you'll notice, uh, this is the largest stone that they have found to date. Josephus has written that the stones were something like 60 feet long, the largest ones, uh, by 10 feet, uh, height and, and width. That's a whole lot of stone. And, and this particular stone that you're seeing on the screen is, is nearly 40 feet long. Uh, nearly or approximately 10 feet high and 12 feet wide now folks that's 400 tons and, and you know just just imagine now for if you're John Marr out there and, and, and you're thinking how in the world did they get this thing <laughs> one on top of the other and, and I mean there are all kinds of th- these are foundation stones but that's a whole lot of rock folks and and then you know when you think about the the the, uh, the the just getting those joints to where they actually uh, they actually really mesh and whatever it's an incredible piece of work so you can imagine what the uh, the disciples were thinking okay i think we've got one more shot here as we look down from the mount of olives this is looking down now you see the kidron valley and then the city of jerusalem that lay behind so the second scene is going to take place with some view approximating this one where they're on the Mount of Olives looking across the Kidron Valley and now looking back upon the city of Jerusalem. And in particular, of course, their focus is on the temple. And because the temple was destroyed, as our Lord Jesus said, uh, we don't have a temple to show you, but you can, I think, sense that it was a great magnificent uh, piece of work even though it was not finished yet it was in, indeed a, a magnificent thing so here they are two scenes two mini discussions that take place uh, the first one at least the mini discussion somebody according to mark's account and i suspect there were others who were caught up in the moment somebody says to jesus hey jesus look at this is this something you know they're really excited about it and Jesus says, well, in effect, don't get too excited, boys. It's not going to be here that long. You know, that's raining on your parade. And then after they uh, cross over the, the Kidron Valley, go up on the Mount of Olives and look down, now the question becomes, okay, so what's the timing of all of this? In effect, when are you going to establish your kingdom? What's the sign, the symbol that indicates that we're there? Um, And Jesus, again, comes across with some very, very sobering words. The mood is serious. It is one of warning and strong exhortation. Watch out, he says a couple of times in the text. It's, by the way, it's a contrast between what we see in the Gospel of John. This is the Olivet Discourse. The Gospel of John has the Upper Room Discourse. So if you read uh, Matthew 24 or, or this text in Mark 13 or in Luke, you read the Olivet Discourse, it's, it's kind of a, um, a downer. Uh, it, it's not an upbeat uh, kind of, of thing that, that you're really going to get excited about. And, and the reason is they were already excited, too excited. Uh, they had to be brought back down to earth in all of this. The Upper Room Discourse is much more... Um, positive, in the sense that Jesus now is speaking to his disciples, he knows they are troubled, they are mulling over what it means for him to be gone, they can 't be there with him, and he 's saying in effect while i 'm going to be gone it 's better for you, my spirit will come, and I will be present with you and so you have all those affirming things said uh, in in uh, the upper room discourse where you find rather discouraging things from the disciples' point of view being said in the Olivet Discourse. This is a private conversation that takes place, not public teaching. Public teaching has ended. And I really wonder if from this point, when when they're leaving the temple and they're coming out through those gates, I wonder if this isn't the last time, as it were, that Jesus will go to the temple, teach publicly, and then leave it seems to me, of course, the trial, the arrest, the trial, and the death of our Lord are very, very close at hand. But it's a private conversation that goes on. I'm not quite sure how private. And we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite and most respected uh, Bible teachers mo- remarked, this is, the, this is Jesus' longest answer to any question that that a disciple ever raised it is but i would also say it's not an answer it's a response <laughs> and there's a difference jesus does not answer the question if he did it wouldn't have to be long what he does is respond to the question and i think he goes beyond the question to why it was asked and the attitude and the mindset of the disciples so yes He responds, no, he does not answer the question. I think if you were to ask the disciples and and say, did Jesus answer your question? They'd say, no. In fact, I wish I hadn't asked. Uh, The answer they got was not what they wanted. So let's go to the first two verses. Uh, There Jesus is leaving the temple. The disciples, and Luke, by the way, puts this the way it's arranged, at least in my Bible. You've got the whole incident of the widow and her contribution. And then there's a discussion and a consideration of on the disciples' part of the gifts that had given and all the beauty then that's attached to the temple. And then this, of course, comment is picked up and dealt with by our Lord Jesus. If we're going to deal with this, we really have to come to terms with the magnificence of the temple. Now, it's not there, so we can't see it. We've seen models of it and, and whatever. But it certainly was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Its, it's stones, as we've seen, were huge In John chapter 2, remember they say, when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up, and they respond by saying, man, it's been being built for 46 years, and it's not finished, folks. 46 years of construction, and it's not done. And uh, it's actually going to be completed not long before it's destroyed. It's one of those things where you you go to all that work and make this fabulous temple, and I think it's finished in the 60s, and in 70s it's gone so it's a beautiful beautiful building the stones are massive upper stones are majestic and beautiful and apparently a lavish use of gold so you can imagine the look of that building when the rays of the sun would strike upon it it'd be incredible to to see that and the disciples obviously were were caught up in the beauty of all that and remember these are sort of country boys these are fishermen they're not really city boys, and so I imagine that there is a certain amount of the spectacular that kind of catches them as well. But you also have to understand the misplaced devotion of Jews to the temple. This was, in a sense, the apple of their eye. They took huge pride in, in, in the temple. And you remember, uh, for instance, during the Babylonian captivity, when they were encouraged by the prophets to, to, to surrender and, 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 and go off into captivity, they saw that temple somehow as their, as their security. And so they refused to leave. And in fact, that was, that was a good part of their destruction. They accused Jesus of speaking against the temple. Remember Stephen's? Uh, words they basically said of Stephen he speaks against this temple that there just wasn't anything worse when Paul is arrested he is arrested because of the false assumption that he has brought Gentiles into a portion of that sacred place that they shouldn't be and it brings about a riot so you've got an intense devotion uh, on the part of the Jews and now Jesus has taken possession of it. So I think you can then see why the disciples are, are saying, wow, it's ours, in a sense. Jesus is here, he's taken over, and, uh, and the, the kingdom must surely be near. So an unnamed disciple says to Jesus, wow, Jesus, look at this. Isn't that cool? And... Uh, Jesus responds in a way that wasn't exactly expected and I suspect was not surely not welcomed He says it's going to be destroyed soon. He does not tell them when He just makes it clear that it's going to happen. By the way, it's interesting to me That as much as we know of this in history the Bible does not make a big point of that in terms of the actual event and so Often when people are trying to date a book, they'll try and say, is it before or after the destruction of the temple? But there's so little said you really don't you you can't you can't use that as a time marker because it just isn't a big thing in terms of what the writers in the New Testament want to make of it. Once it is fulfilled, Jesus does not give the timing. What he does is to show the folly of having such devotion to the temple If it's not going to last, you know, I mean, why get all caught up about something that's just not not going to make it? I was think I was reminded thinking about that of of a few years ago when uh, I bought a a Camry uh, on eBay. And actually, I, I picked it up just a couple of miles up the road. And it was a Saturday afternoon and it had a beautiful paint job. And drove it home, and that night was, you remember the big hailstorm, and I actually raced up here, tried to park on the sidewalk under the cover, and whatever I could. That car got pounded, you know. And, and so, whatever sense of, you know, oh, this is really a cool car, it quickly went away. And, and the temple is, is sort of that way for the disciples it isn't going to last, don't get attached when he says not one stone will be left on another if you think about the size of those stones that's not small talk think about what it took to get those stones one on top of the other this is going to be an incredible event uh, which jesus is speaking about but i think there is a larger principle it's not just that the temple is going to be gone uh, and we know that to be in 70 a.d but It seems to me that what is behind all of this is it's earthly. When you look at a text like Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16, what you see there is that the Old Testament saints were not looking for an earthly country. And they were not looking for an earthly city. They were looking for a heavenly one. And so if it was heavenly, then they had less attachment, as it were, To earthly things because that isn't where their treasure was that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 don't lay up treasures on earth lay up treasures in heaven where they're going to be eternal where they last so the larger principle is don't get hung up with material things that aren't going to last for eternity and it seems as though the disciples may have been caught up uh, in that but more than that, I think there was literally an idolatry that was associated with the temple. I, th- I think the temple meant more to them than just a beautiful building. I think they put their trust in that building. For instance, if you look back in 1 Samuel, remember where the ark, uh, where Israel's going out against the Philistines... and the ark uh, is left behind and they lose and then they get the ark and they're going to take it into battle with them and all the Israelites think, man, we got them licked now. They put more trust in that ark than in their God. And they lost the ark, as you know. The brazen serpent began to be worshipped as some kind of almost magical thing and it had to be destroyed. The temple was the same way. They had their trust in it. Second scene comes to us as they look down from the Mount of Olives and look across the Kidron Valley there to the holy city and in particular to the temple. Jesus is privately questioned by the four. Now, the other uh, Gospels may indicate that some of them, you know, raised this question about what was the time. It's interesting that only Mark, the guy who is supposed to give us the Reader's Digest version, has the details. It's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. A couple of pairs of brothers here. And they want to know. And I don't know. The text does not say to us. Why did they ask him privately? Doesn't, Doesn't that sort of seem interesting? In other words, it isn't just the 12 disciples saying to Jesus, Okay, we know there are times like the interpretation of the parables where we want to ask and you're only going to tell us as as a select group. Okay, I'm I'm, I'm all all right with that. But why only four who somehow have done this? It looks to me like a James and John John deal, you know, where they're sidling up again. And, and And I call this, is it really a power play? Is it that if these four disciples know something from Jesus about the future that the other eight disciples don't know, that somehow that sets them above the others? I, I, I raise the question, even if it's not true here, and I'm not so sure but what there's something wrong with why they asked it that privately. But I think that this is one of the things that characterizes some Christians about prophecy. There is almost um, an undue curiosity to know things that may not have been revealed so that you know something more than somebody else does. There is within Christianity, and there certainly is, as I see it in the New Testament church, the great danger of Gnosticism is there's this inside knowledge that only a few of the select know. And knowing that sets them above everybody else. That flies in the face of everything I know about Scripture and about the church. But somehow I get the sense that maybe these four guys are, are, are asking a question. My sense is that Jesus doesn't answer them alone. Now, it doesn't say, but you remember when the two, or I'm sorry, when, when James and John uh, come and ask for a right hand and left hand spots, Jesus deals with the issue in front of all of them not just with them. And it seems to me that that's probably what happens here. Jesus probably waits or calls his other disciples and and deals with the question that has been raised. My assumption as I approach this passage is that Jesus goes beyond the question. The reason that he does not answer the question is not only that they don't need to know, but that there is something fundamentally wrong with their attitudes and their expectations for asking the question. And so his lengthy message is dealing with what lies behind the question rather than just dealing with the question itself. An answer to the question could have come quickly or he could have simply refused to answer it. But he gives a lengthy response, which I think addresses... This kind of giddy enthusiasm that knowing what we know about what the future holds is really ill-founded. Their expectations and reality were a long ways apart. I think the other thing that you see here is that while they're talking about this, in a sense, the, the, the last days, the coming of the kingdom if you look in the old testament remember the israelites were saying the day of the lord the day of the lord and the prophet says to him you know guys i wouldn't get so worked up about this if you realize the day of the Lord's a day of judgment you know somehow you're thinking of the day of the lord only in terms of blessings rather than the difficult stuff so it seems to me that that may play into this They're looking for Jesus to pronounce on that day and that time. And so what they've done is you've got this final consummation that's down here somewhere in time. They don't know where. Somewhere in time. They think it's very near, but it's really, we know, at least 2,000 years distant. They want to know when that's going to happen, and they want to know the sign that just immediately precedes it. So in effect, they want to leave out this whole section In Time that comes from there to their moment in their time and experience here They're leaving that out. What Jesus does is to say let's push this one back and let's talk about this piece Of what's going to happen over the time that is intervening Notice that here as elsewhere Jesus not only knows the question. He knows why it's asked You know, we saw that in the great debate, right? All these questions are asked, and Jesus would say, you know, why why this hypocrisy? He knew what they were after, and so he answered in the light of that. He knows why they're asking as well. And so he deals, I think, with their motivation and their mindset as he does it. So here's the first admonition. Don't be misled so as to follow a false messiah. He actually says uh, in the text that, he, that, that this one, uh, these people will come along and they will say, if you notice in the New American Standard, it says, I am he, but the he is italicized. They come along and they say, I am. Do you understand the arrogance of that claim? They're not saying Jesus sent me. They're saying I am Messiah. So that's a huge Statement to make and you say to yourself why in the world would there be a danger? For the disciples or other people for somebody to mistake one of these counterfeits for him How could that be I? Think it's easier than you than you might expect and I think it has to do with their um, Overly enthusiastic expectations let's say their enthusiasm about hope and change and and they're they're really looking forward they think man that this is the kingdom is just virtually on the on the brink and all this stuff good stuff is going to come along but here's what happens if you've got unrealistic expectations about what the future holds if you think that the future holds nothing but victory and prominence and power and glory and possessing uh, this this uh, majestic temple and and reigning with Jesus there and you're not thinking in terms of a length of time and a lot of trouble what's going to happen is when you get to a point and it's coming very soon Jesus says when you get to the point where real troubles come your way you're going to start asking questions are you not You're going to start saying, wait a minute, was was I right? As a matter of fact, let's take one good example. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is saying, wait a minute, Jesus, you didn't meet my, my expectations here. Now, his expectations were actually on the downside, not on the upside. But the reality is, when reality doesn't meet with our expectations, then we may begin to challenge reality rather than the expectations and jesus is saying to them be careful because what may happen is when the difficulties come you're going to be looking for escape because your plan doesn't include suffering and trials and persecution so you're going to be saying how do we get out of this or more pointedly who can we trust who will get us out of this now this is really illustrated very shortly after Jesus says these words, is it not? Why do people call for Barabbas instead of Jesus? Why do they want Jesus to die and Barabbas to live? They had put their hopes in Jesus, and they expected him to bring on the kingdom and blessings, give us this food forevermore, John 6 terms, and and so on. They expected all of those goodies, and when they realized they're not coming, not immediately at least, then they say to themselves, then we better go with somebody who can kick Rome out of here, who can bring about revolution, can give us political freedom. That man was Barabbas. Barabbas wasn't the guy who they chose because they said, well, he's better than Jesus in the sense of uh, we know he's got his flaws, but we're going to go with him. His flaws were what they wanted in Jesus. So you have these false expectations. And Jesus is saying, be very careful with your expectations When troubles come your way, you're going to be looking for an escape, you're going to be looking for a deliverer, and you're going to be tempted to look somewhere other than to me because of what you expect him to produce. Second admonition. Don't be frightened by any external adversity. Now, I think you have to look at this in the light of of kind of the circumstance that you see And and I don't think we have to go out to the history books necessarily to see that. I think you can see it in the New Testament itself. God had uniquely prepared the times so that the Roman Empire now, in a sense, their whole world was under Roman rule. Granted, they didn't like the tax part. They may not have liked Caesar or some of his uh, underlings. But the reality is they had peace and safety. They had a measure of security that was there, and consequently, you didn't have a lot of the revolt and so on. Now, I I threw in here the comparison with the USSR. Think about the USSR when you have the the Soviet bloc that is run by a dictatorial system. You know, you may not like what all that means, but when that bloc broke up, what began to happen? Now you have all of these ethnic wars and, and, and cleansings and all kinds. Of, you might as well just say it. All hell broke loose. Now I'm not advocating uh, any of that. I'm simply saying that what you see in a strong dictatorial government is there is a measure of peace and safety. And my friends, when push comes to shove and things get tough, people will often opt more often opt for dictatorship and the surrender of liberties in order for peace and safety than they will to insist on, on, on the democratic, let's call it, ideal. So it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is, here is this circumstance where Rome has virtually everything under control. And and you can see how God orchestrated that so that Paul could go out, for instance, travel on the Roman roads, even be protected by Roman officials uh, and, and and Roman uh, judgments that would uh, mean that that he was allowed as a as a Jew to practice his Judaism and proclaim it. But that's that's going to end, and when it does, folks, you're going to start seeing. Just chaos break loose and all these things. And that's part of what I think our Lord is talking about. And he's saying when you see this chaos, this disorder in the political realm, and then when you add and overlay that with this cosmic chaos of earthquakes and and floods and all of these kinds of things, you're going to look for somebody who gives you Deliverance you're going to be afraid and fear my friends is not faith. It's the enemy of faith Don't be afraid because this is all a part of what God Has orchestrated as the necessary things to lead to the end Third admonition be prepared for persecution now it gets personal You know, here you have governments and wars and rumors of wars and and floods and all of that sort of impersonal stuff. Now he says, people are going to hate you because they hate me. You're going to have governments that are now going to be hostile to Christianity. We're seeing, I think, that happening at a frightening rate, a disturbing rate at least. Maybe I shouldn't use the word frightening in that context. Disturbing rate. And, he says, you're going to find that even those closest to you may well betray you. They may well turn you in, in this mood of anti-faith, anti-Christ. Here's what he says, and I think we really have to be careful uh, with these two verses uh, and two statements that our Lord makes in order to understand what he says. Because the big statement here is, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And, and you could do some strange and less than wonderful things with that phrase if you're not careful about what Jesus is talking about here. The other thing is, he says, don't worry about what you're to speak. Now, I find this very interesting. And I, I kind of tripped over this for a long time because I said to myself, wait a minute, why is it that Jesus is saying, in effect, You need to be prepared for what's coming. And what's coming is not what you expect. So I'm going to tell you what's coming so you've got a realistic view of what the future holds. not telling you dates. I'm not telling you sequence. I'm just telling you these things are coming. In effect, he's got three points. Temple is going down. Time is going to take place. That is, a lot more time than you anticipate is going to be between now and then. And trouble those are the three things I think that he's uh, trying to get across so you say to yourself if he's saying to his disciples you really need to prepare mentally for this then why in the world would he say to his disciples don't prepare to say anything you know that would in my mind I have to tell you when I was in seminary I didn't like homiletics because I didn't like discipline and, and so I didn't want to have to think through and whatever. And, oh, this is my, this is my text, my text, you know, where I would get up here on Sunday and say, oh, the Lord spoke to me on my way to church this morning and, and just wing it. You know, you get uh, too much of that sometimes from various places. He's not talking about not preparing in terms of a gospel presentation. I don't think that's his emphasis, but he's, that's not what he's talking about. When you come to Luke 21 and 24, what he's talking about is not preparing in advance what you are going to say in your own defense. Now get this. Trouble comes for the sake of the gospel. You are drug before emperors and rulers and all these powers so that the gospel may be proclaimed to them. So, what you shouldn't be saying to yourself is, let me see, there's gonna be trouble, uh, which lawyer am I gonna to call to, to defend myself? And, and which part of the Constitution am I gonna call upon or whatever? You know, it, it's not about protecting your rights in this instance. It's not about getting yourself out of jail. What he's saying is, don't spend your energy in self-preservation preparation. That's not your focus. Don't spend your time and your energy thinking, what am I going to do to get myself out of this mess? What you ought to do is realize this is the place for the proclamation of the gospel. And when you stand before these people, God will give you through his spirit... He will give you the words to say. There is no better example of that than in the book of Acts. Stephen. Man. Look at this. Here's a guy who's brought up on false charges. Right? Speaks bad against the temple and whatever. Stephen gets up. Man. He lays it on. Their teeth are gnashing together. They are going ballistic. Because... He's not there to defend himself. He's there to accuse them before God. So, all what I'm saying is, when he says, don't worry about what you're to speak, he's saying, don't worry about what you are to speak in your defense. Let God speak to you in terms of your declaration of the gospel. Then, when he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved... I think the answer to that comes in uh, earlier in Mark in chapter eight, when Peter has made his great confession, Jesus responds by saying, that's right. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. Peter takes Jesus aside and said, we're not going to have any of that talk. And Jesus says to him, Peter, the one who tries to save his life will lose it the one who loses his life for my sake will save it. So what I think he's saying in this context is, if you understand the purpose that God has for this trouble, if you understand the purpose is to proclaim the gospel, not to protect you from troubles, then you're giving up your life. You're surrendering your life. And in doing so, you save it. You may die but you save it. So it seems to me that that's the sense, the reversed uh, value system, as it were, is he who seeks to save it loses it. He who loses it for the gospel saves it. So here's some things that I want to say to you uh, in wrapping all this up. Here's one that isn't in your notes. It, it, It finally occurred to me, this is really about expectations. This is really about expectations, biblical expectations. We saw a beautiful marriage yesterday, a beautiful wedding a ceremony. And one of the things that, that should happen in, in virtually every couple going through premarriage counseling is you ought to talk about what their expectations are. You know, some people go into marriage and they think it is going to be, you know, the, the, we say the honeymoon is over. Well, that's reality. Life is not all one honeymoon. And so when you enter into marriage, you have you should have expectations. Everything's not going to come up roses. Every day is not going to be a glorious day. Uh, the kids are going to get sick, you know, going to lose your job, maybe lose your health. That's why you say in sickness and in health, expectations. People who have unrealistic expectations in marriage are sure to have trouble. Because they think they've been robbed. When in reality, they've just gotten a taste of life. Same with having children. Oh, they're lovely. They're beautiful. Bring them home, folks. Bring them home and let them start to grow up. And reality strikes. If you've got unrealistic expectations about children, you're going to have disappointment. You think about church. And what to expect from the preacher from your brother or sister sitting next to you. Reality is, folks, our expectations need to be realistic. And by the way, if you read the New Testament the way I read the New Testament, you ought to have realistic expectations. Read 1 Corinthians, for example. That'll help your expectation level go down. That's reality. But that's where Christian faith and Christian life comes in. Is That's the reality in which we live but unreal expectations lead us to to frustration now I'm gonna jump on the the uh, name and claim it good life gospel thing for just one second some people think they're doing others a favor by promising them that if they simply have enough faith they won't get, get sick they won't die they won't whatever they'll just be rich and famous and happy And everything's going their way. Folks, that's that's creating unrealistic expectations. The gospel that some people preach is a baited gospel. If you trust in Jesus, your troubles are going away. You're going to be much better off in your life. Boy, you read the last part of Luke chapter 9. People say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, I'm with you. Well, I don't have a place that I call home. What do you think of that? Jesus is saying, when you choose to follow me, you choose to take up your cross. Jesus never went light on the reality of what following him meant. He said, it's going to be hard. And when we undersell the gospel by making promises of what it's going to do, which create unreal expectations and unbiblical ones, then no wonder you've got difficulties. Let me just... Take you even in the clear presentation of the gospel. I've been thinking about Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the soils. First soil, you know, those are the hardened hearts. Never, never makes an impact at all. Second soil, you've got people who are quickly responding and suffering. And adversity comes into their life and they bail because they don't have root. Third soil is the cares of this world. I think these are two of the things Jesus is dealing with here. He's saying to his disciples, you're all hung up uh, uh, about this, the the, the beauty of this temple and whatever. You're thinking in terms of worldly stuff. That's what he said to Peter. You get your mind on worldly things rather than on me. And uh, when it comes to suffering, that's part of the plan. That's part of what God has in store for his people so the purpose of suffering is, one, in our text, the proclamation of the gospel. Oh, I've got to tell you one more thing. Here's the way, one of the, well, I won't tell you who it was. It's one of the guys I love to beat on in, in the commentaries. But he's saying, unless we understand all of this from, from, in a sense, the Jewish perspective, which isn't given to us in the scriptures, but which we've got to get from history, then we're re- really never going to get it. Now, I'll make another suggestion to you. Two of the four guys who asked the question privately wrote books of the New Testament. And so, isn't it interesting, if you want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, read them. John, in the Gospel of John He talks in the Upper Room Discourse, he talks about, you know, abiding in Christ and persevering and loving one another and obeying his commandments. Peter talks about, 1 Peter chapter chapter 1 through 5, all of 1 Peter talks about suffering, suffering. 2 Peter talks about false teachers. Isn't that interesting? So what I would suggest to you is, if you want to see these things played out, See the way the people who first heard it played it out for people in later times. Anyway, so the proclamation of the gospel is one of the purposes for the suffering that will happen in the interim. The purification of the saints, first Peter. The glory of God. Remember it says in First Peter chapter two When they abuse you in the day of visitation, they'll have to glorify God for what he has done and who he is and even your faithfulness. So that brings me to our attitude towards time and trouble with respect to the future. We look back at the disciples and we say to ourselves, Oh, what is wrong with those guys? Why couldn't they see that the kingdom wasn't going to come immediately? Why couldn't they see that trouble was going to be a great part of their experience. How many Christians today believe that? How many Christians today are are dealing with the fact, yes, Jesus could come now. Yes, Jesus could come tomorrow. Yes, he could. But how many are really bracing up to the fact, maybe he won't? How about that? Now, we know from what we read that there, there, there appear to be some things that have not yet happened. So maybe there's going to be more time before he comes than we expect. And I hate to bring it up, but that time is characterized by trouble. Not only natural disasters, not only political strife and struggles. Boy, we got a lot of that going on. But persecution. Persecution. See, we in the West, we in America, we look at this as foreign soil. i got to tell you, people in North Korea and China and, and the Middle East, this isn't academic stuff. They're living this stuff. All through history they've lived it. We're the exception. So all I'm saying is, when we read Jesus' words, folks, they speak to us. They say to us, I may not be coming tomorrow. It might be later. And I got to tell you what, it's not going to be all roses along that path. But if we have the right expectations, then we're not disillusioned, are we? That's what Jesus is doing. He's telling them how the cow ate the cabbage, how it really is in the future. That's what they need to understand, not some far off date. They need to understand that God's purpose is to delay. Peter says one of his reasons is so that he gives time to men to repent. And that means he's given us time to proclaim the gospel. When we're drugged before governments, he gives us the opportunity to proclaim Christ. So, think about those things. And last of all, think about... The first coming of Christ in the light of the second. I think it's very interesting to, so to speak, look back from the vantage point of the second coming, and to look back on the first. Isn't it a wonder when you think about, for instance, Revelation and and the description of our Lord as the one before whom John falls down like a dead man? Does it not add to the wonder of Christmas? When you see this one who comes with all of his power and his glory and his splendor. and He's willing to come into poverty, to be born of a, of, of a poor of virgin gal and, and born in a, in, in a barn and laying in a, in a cattle trough. Doesn't that add a dimension for you? And the second coming hasn't come yet so that you can deal with the first. See, it's the first coming of Jesus that will save you, isn't it? It's the first coming of Jesus where he comes and bears the guilt and the sin and the punishment of the sinner so that when the second coming comes, judgment doesn't come with it. Judgment has already fallen on him. That's the beauty of celebrating Christmas at the first coming is it changes everything in terms of our expectations for the second coming. So I give you those things to think about as you think about the days ahead. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way that he shoots so straight. Thank you that he tells us what's real, not just what lures us, what we want to hear. But he tells us what we need to hear. Thank you that he came so that he might bear the weight and the guilt of our sin. Help us this Christmas season to celebrate him and to look for his coming. In Jesus' name, amen.